As you're wrapping up your hellos, you can take your Bible and turn it to Psalm 25. Uh, Psalm 25, as we continue our look at Christ in the Psalms. As we approached Christmas this year, we thought um, a unique way to find Christ and understand why he came to earth and uh, some of his purposes were to understand how he is fulfilled in the Psalms. Uh, Christ himself said, when I was with you before, I told you everything about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there is references to Christ in the Psalms, and that's what we've been um, examining over these last weeks. Psalm 25, uh, if you have it, uh, you can follow along uh, as we read it together this morning. I had it, but I just closed it. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed, rather, who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and I wait for you all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and, or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humbles in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and the offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever to the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Make the word live in us today, I pray. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and wills to obey. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we go through this psalm, I will draw attention to it once in a while, but just ask yourself, is there anything in this psalm that must be fulfilled through the birth of Jesus? Is there anything in this psalm that points to our Lord Jesus? This is a psalm, I, I call it an alphabet psalm, uh, or an acrostic psalm. By that we mean that every line of the psalm starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's a couple that are missing along the way, but for the most part, it is structured accordingly. 
It provides boundaries for the chaos that is spoken of, though, within this psalm. What I'm trying to say is that our lives can be a mess, and they can be described as a mess, but there is a structure for that mess. On my own yesterday, I sat down and wrote my own psalm of lament using Psalm 25 with the English alphabet. And I just went through every letter of the alphabet and and tried to describe my own life as the psalmist describes his life here in Psalm 25. And I guess what I realize and what I hope we understand is that the life of a Christian is not a rosy life. It's not a perfect life. It is a life that's full of affliction and troubles and enemies. It's wars without, it's wars within. But there is a structure, there is a framework for how we handle those boundaries and those suffering and those afflictions. It's within the context of a living God and the order that God has provided that we find a way or a path through these kind of circumstances. This is a Psalm of David. It's told us that it's a Psalm of David. What we're not told is the circumstances of this psalm. And I'm glad we're not told the circumstances of this psalm. Because I think what we might then be tempted to do is say, well, that was David's life in that particular situation. And it doesn't really apply to my life. Uh, Yeah, he had some difficulties, and I get those. But that's not my life, and that's not my world. I think the Spirit of God has been purposefully general so that we can also put our afflictions and our troubles and our sin within the context of what David is saying here. What is good for the king is good for the king's subjects, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I can imagine David out on a chariot ride maybe one day. He's been perplexed by the week. Uh, Maybe he's had some uh, battles. He's come back from the battlefield. Maybe his own life has been topsy-turvy. There's been stuff going on in his life. And he, he says, I just need to get away, get my chariot ready. And off he goes for a little bit of a chariot ride. I find that when I go out into the woods, I can walk for kilometers in the woods. And that's when I lament before God often. I will pour out my soul to God and I will give him my sufferings and my complaints and my sins and my troubles. And I work them out, I speak them out to God as I'm walking in the woods. Lament is a good thing. Lament is an okay thing for people to do. And it's certainly an okay thing for Christians to do. You come to this particular psalm and sometimes the candor of David is a little bit troubling for a lot of people. David is not above articulating his distress or admitting that he's in tough. And I I think there's far too much pride sometimes, even among the people of God. A a great deal of dread that that we have where if we tell people of our need or we talk to them about our troubles, that they'll look at us as as somehow we're less Christian. Somehow we've got it less together than than other people out. How can you be a Christian and be troubled there? How can you be a, a Christian and struggle with that? We might secretly think they're saying to themselves when we've talked with them. But I've lived long enough, and I've been involved in enough people's lives to know that all kinds of troubles and afflictions come into the lives of the people of God. And we need to be willing to say, I need help. We need to be willing to say to God, I need help, God. I feel the pressure from my enemies without. I feel the pressure from my enemies within. I feel the struggles and afflictions that my life and the circumstances seem to have brought me. I need help. How else do we bear one another's burdens among the family of God? If we never at least say that and say, I need help, how will we ever have people come alongside of us and pray for us and walk with us for a period of time? How else can we bear one another's burdens? Jesus did this. As he walked into the garden, you remember that night 
uh, hours before he would be arrested and then crucified, he said to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. That's how strong the afflictions and the sufferings Jesus was feeling. He knew the attacks of his enemies. And he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Remain with me and watch with me. And we know they fell asleep. There's a few songs that run through my head often, or more like there's lines from songs that run through my head. And one that kept going through my head as I was working on this sermon and working it through is by a, a band called Stabilo. And they have a song which is Rain a While. And I couldn't tell you the whole words, uh, lyrics, but there's one line, whenever it comes on in my study or in my car, if nobody's around me, I will belt it out. And it's simply this. It's okay to feel alone. It's okay to feel not strong once in a while. It's wonderful to, to go before the Lord and not feel strong, not feel that I've got it all together, and to feel my loneliness before the Lord. That's what I think David is doing here. Something's not right. He's, he's in trouble. He needs guidance. He, he needs direction. He needs clarity on things. And he's all over the map in this psalm. He talks about the dread of disgrace. Don't let me be put to shame. He, he speaks of his troubles and his distresses. He says, Lord, teach me, guide me, make me know your past. He says, the distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my trouble and my afflictions. Take away all of my sins. Consider my numerous enemies. Pull my feet out of the net. I'm alone and afflicted. Like, that's just massive. And he brings it before the Lord. What I often appreciate about the psalmist, though, is he, he does that out of a sure foundation, though. It's kind of like, here I place my Ebenezer, my, my stone of surety, my, my stone of security. I'm, I'm facing all this stuff, and I'm, I'm troubled by it. My circumstances are all over the map, and my insides are in turmoil. But this much I know. In other words, it's okay to lament. It's okay to admit that our, our circumstances are not what we would want them to be. But we go to a God who does exist. We have a framework of what that God is like. It's a God who displays his loving kindness, whose character is trustworthy, whose promises are sure. And this psalm is a, a way of looking at my life, not from my circumstances up to God, but from God down into my circumstances. And so David begins in the midst of all this. He starts by just simply saying, Lord, I turn to you. I trust in you. I turn my hope to you. That's, that's where we all have to start at least somehow in our life as a child of God. We have to believe that, that we can trust God. And we have to know that we can hope in him. Our lives might be a mess. Our worlds might be a mess. We might not be able to make sense of anything. But that much we know is true. And this is what David starts his complaint out with. God, I have nowhere else to turn. God, I have no way to make sense of what's going on in my world. But I hope in you. I trust in you. And then he says, don't let me be disgraced. That's a fascinating phrase. He's worried about something. He, I think he's worried about what might happen to him if, if God doesn't reach out to him in some way. He's worried about maybe letting God down. My wife and I have been watching this uh, series alone. 
Some of you may be familiar with alone. They take a bunch of people, 10 people, they drop them out in the wilderness some way, and whoever resists starvation the longest wins a prize. And it's fascinating to, to follow these people. And um, if you have had too much and you can't endure any longer and something goes wrong, you're, you're able to tap out. And when they interview people along the way, they, they, they give little things. And what, what keeps them going? Sometimes it's disgrace. And when they tap out, they're in tears because I've let my family down. I've let my kids down. I've let myself down. I didn't want to fail. I wanted to make it to the end. They're, they're in dread of disgrace. Have you ever felt like that with God? God, I'm almost at the point where I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to disgrace you. I don't want to let you down. I turn to you, I hope in you, don't let me be disgraced. Don't let me be disgraced by such a long delay in your help coming that people look at me and they say, where's your God now? Like they do in 1 Peter, where's your God now? He said he's coming back, he hasn't coming back, things are staying the same. God, don't let my hope in your promises disgrace me. Don't let my expectations lead me to confusion and embarrassment and dismay when the outcome is not what I've longed for. Don't let my enemies exalt over me. Don't let me be disgraced. You read the story of Joseph, and Joseph was not disgraced. He trusted in the Lord to the end. You read the story of Esther, and Esther was not disgraced as God delivered her. You read the story of Job, and Job was not disgraced. You read about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he was not disgraced. God rose him from the dead, and God elevated him to a place above all things. And not one person, he says, will be disgraced. Not one person who waits for you. Not one person who trusts in you. Not one person who hangs in there. God will never let you down. God will never give up on you. God's promises will never fail. Even if you die in your sufferings, he will raise you up on the last day. Even if you die in your afflictions, there is coming a day when you will feel no more pain, no more sorrow, no more rejection. You will enter into perfection. You won't sin any longer. You won't be disgraced by sin any longer. There is coming a day when if you wait for the Lord, you will never be disgraced. I find this in my life. I don't know if you find it in your life, but I often find prayer to be a mixture of assurance and anxiety. There's things I know to be true about God, and I claim them, and I call out to God, but I'm anxious in my own heart. Because I wonder, sometimes, does he hear me? I wonder if I'll hang in there. I wonder if I can really make it. And so there's this, this tension sometimes, even as I go before the Lord of my trust in him, and my anxiety about my own self. I think sometimes there is this reality that David is praying that God would, um, uh, that, that, that in the midst of his, his trust and, and his troubles, that he, he would hang in to God. Hang on to God. I think this lip prayer must have been on the lips of Jesus so often. Maybe as he was walking out in, in the desert for 40 days and as the devil came along him and he recognized it, I wonder if David quietly in his, or Jesus quietly in his mind says, oh Lord, I trust in you. I hope in you. Do not let me be disgraced. And God gave him the help that he needed as he waited upon him to respond to every one of the temptations of the evil one. I wonder if when Jesus was being ridiculed and mocked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
and the tensions were rising and the enemies were, were pressing in on him and he called out, oh Lord, I hope in you, I trust in you, do not let me be disgraced. He says that Jesus was like us in every way and yet without sin. Can you imagine the temptation that Jesus faced on a day in, day out basis? But Father, I trust in you, I hope in you, let me not be disgraced. David prays when he's in distress, verses four to seven. So he's got this foundation of what he knows about God to be true. But he prays towards God. Notice that David doesn't give God the silent treatment. Sometimes that's what we're prone to do when we're in trouble or when we're fighting or when we're angry about circumstances. I'm still learning that the silent treatment gets me nowhere. I did that as a child. When I didn't understand things, I would shut up and I wouldn't talk to anybody. I've done that as a young man in marriage with my wife. I think I've gotten a lot better at it, but sometimes that's just my fallback default position. My life's not going well. Can't make sense of it. You're bugging me. I'm not going to talk to you. Those of you that deal with that, how's that working for you? It doesn't do good, does it? And David doesn't give God the silent treatment. David articulates as best as he can to God what's going on in his life and what's going on in his world. He expresses it. He gets it out. He, he speaks it out to the Lord. That in itself is, a, is an attitude. Show me what I'm doing wrong. Show me what I don't understand. Help me to understand. It's a posture of humility. I don't get it right all the time. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. Help me. Humble me, God. It's an admission that I'm in over my head. I can't make sense of this. It's a confidence. God, you hear me, and you'll respond to me, and you will help me. In other words, David simply goes before the Lord, and he says, in the midst of all my suffering and all my affliction and all my sinfulness and all my worry about disgrace, teach me, Lord. Teach me. And what does he say? Make your paths known to me, or make your ways known to me, and teach me your paths. Guide me or lead me in your truth. It's his way of saying, open my eyes to the wonder of your ways. I thought of this initially, and I thought, well, is David, he must be praying, Lord, maybe, maybe I don't know your commands well enough. Maybe I, I don't know your ordinances well enough. Maybe there's some things that I'm not walking in or not obeying you enough, and, and that's why some of these things are coming in my life. So teach me to know more fully what you command. I don't think that's what David is praying here, though. I think what he's wanting to know is, God, show me what you're up to. Show me what it is you're doing in my life. He's not wanting information about precepts, but insights into God's providence. He's not concerned with what God demands. He, he wants to know how God leads his people. His prayer is that God might show him what he's up to, that show him how he's working, that God might give him confidence in the bigger picture of his, his life and the world in which he lives. Is this not what happened with Job? Job's world was turned upside down. He kept saying, God, I want an audience with you. God, you need to talk to me. God, you need to relieve me. God, you need to show me what I've done wrong. And then you know the, if you know the story of Job, you get to, I think it's chapter 38, and Job's, God says, okay, okay, listen up. And God just paints this picture, which is mind-blowing, 
of the breadth of his wisdom, of the eternal reality of his wisdom, of the whole world that God manages and controls and maintains and leads and guides. And it's all of a sudden that, that the penny dropped in Job's head and he realized, if that's God's way with this world, that's God's way with my life. And he humbled himself and he confessed before the Lord and he says, woe is me. I think that's the same thing we see happening in John in the book of Revelation. I love December because December, I always get to go through the book of Revelation in my reading, my Bible reading. And John had this amazing privilege of being brought up into heaven and getting a glimpse of God's perspective on world history, on, on what God is doing over the ages. And, 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 and God showed him uh, through Christ and the, the messages that he got and the pictures that he had exactly what God is doing and where God is going and the, the big picture of God's plans. And that God was gracious enough to give us that so that as we look in this world, we might also know something of the ways of God, something of the paths of God in this world in which we live. Isaiah, in one place, says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, this is God speaking, so are my ways higher than your ways. We get that, right? That the ways of God are so much bigger, so much broader, so much more perfect, so much compre more comprehensive than our ways. And your thoughts than my thoughts. But oh, we so often want to know something of the ways of God, don't we? I think that's what David is praying here as he's going through this stuff in his life. He says, God, just give me a glimpse of what you're up to. Give me a glimpse of your providence. Help me understand the, the, the picture of my life a little bit, the, the trajectory of where I'm going. One day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favor, favorably on you. If that is true, that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways. So I might understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. Let me know your ways, God. Joseph realized this, did he not? I, I'm sure Joseph did. 22 years later, his brothers came to him. And remember, they came to him in fear. And we've often quoted this verse. And what was Joseph's words to them? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph had come to understand something of the ways of God in his being sold into slavery, in his being falsely accused of rape, in ending up in prison and being forgotten in prison, and then finally being elevated as the second in the whole realm of Egypt. He had come to understand something of the ways of God, something of the paths of God, and he says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve you. In Acts, we read about the death of Jesus and the disciples speaking to the people say, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They had come to know the ways of God in the death of Jesus. They had come to know the paths of God in the suffering and affliction of Jesus. This is what David prays in verse 10 of this psalm. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David is now getting to a pretty sweet truth here. He's saying, whatever God is up to, 
All the ways of God are steadfast love and faithfulness. God is not an ogre. He's not mean. He's not sitting up in heaven whacking you just for the fun of it. That's not his way. He is, his ways are steadfast love and faithfulness. In verse 14, listen, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. He makes known to them his ways. The heart of God's ways, his path, is his steadfast love, his faithfulness, and his covenant. Think this through with me for a moment, loved ones. It's not easy, but when you're going through stress and you're going through affliction and you're going through trouble and, and your sin has overwhelmed you and, and you're distressed and you're beat up from outside and you're beat up from the inside, never doubt the steadfast love of God. Never doubt the faithfulness of God. Never doubt the covenant promise of God that nothing will ever separate us from his love. Isn't it true, those of you who have walked with the Lord for some time now, that maybe as you've gone through significant troubles, afflictions, times of sin and distress, you might have been crying out for this, and God may not have been absolutely clear to you, but you look back on that now five years, ten years, and you see the steadfast love of God. You see the faithfulness of God. You see the way that God guided your steps day in, day out, how, how he prevented you from this, how he helped you in that circumstance. That though the way was sometimes twisted and we somehow made it seemingly by hook or by crook, yet we found that the disappointments that we faced led to deliverances. And the frustrations that we endured led to escape from temptations. And the difficulties strangely prevented disasters in our life. And when the Lord glimpse, gives us a glimpse of those ways, we know why we long for him all the days. Isn't this what we stopped with Psalm 107? I think it was last week or the week before that. Let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the acts of his faithful love. David says, let me experience the warmth of your compassions. That's what he says in verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. The compassions of God are the eternal compassions of God. This is who God is. This is the character of our God. Tender mercy. That we don't receive what we deserve. Loving kindness that he pours out again and again and again and again in our lives. Loving kindness. And it goes way, way back. It goes back not only to King David, it goes back further to Abraham. It goes back further to Genesis 3.15. It goes back further to when God first created this world that he determined that this would be a theater of redemption. He determined from eternity past that he would work towards us with loving kindness and faithfulness. And he hasn't changed his ways. David 
brings up a particular instance, though, of remembering. It's fascinating to me. As he's thinking about God's compassion, what is, what is a way that we exhibit compassion? By not remembering something. And so David talks about the Lord's way with sinners. He says, don't remember. Don't bring to mind the sins of my youth or my willful rebellion. David can remember this. How readily our sins of the past are paraded before our minds. They don't have to be big, big sins. They, they can be little sins, little lies that we committed or little things that we did to be mean to somebody at some point. Or they could be big sins, but we are really good at just bringing them up and parading them through our mind again and again and again and again. How marvelous then a non-remembering God. That God takes our sins and he casts them behind his back. That God removes them as far as the east is from the west. That God blots them out. You know, it doesn't mean that God forgets our sins. Right? God can't forget anything. So what does God What's it saying then? Don't remember. It's saying, well, God, don't bring them up to me any longer. God, don't bring them up to somebody else any longer. God, don't bring them up to yourself any longer. Loved ones, that is what we do when we forgive another person. That is what it means to forgive. There's people here that have been hurt terribly. What does it mean to forgive somebody who has hurt you? Well, it means that I will never talk to you about it again. It means that I will never talk to somebody else about it again. And it means that I will not keep bringing up in my own heart and mind and dwelling on him again. And this is what David asks of God. Don't remember my sins any longer. There's an antidote or an anecdote that I read. It appeared in Leadership Magazine. There's a woman in a town in the Philippines who was said to have a, a, just an intimate conversation with the Lord, a relationship with the Lord. And a local priest came to her one day and wanted to test her and told her that the next time that she had such a conference to ask, uh, ask the Lord what sin he committed while he was in seminary. Sometime later, he happened to come across the path of this woman, and he said, did you speak with him? And she said, yes, I did. And he said, well, what did he say? And she said, he said, I don't remember. God does not remember our sins. That is the warmth of his compassion. Rather, remember me according to your steadfast love, according to your goodness, according to your covenant. That's an audacious ask, isn't it? Wow, like how, how, how can we do that? Because God is full of tender mercy and his loving kindness endures forever. And then there's some self-talk which is helpful when we're going through all kinds of afflictions and sufferings. Self-talk matters. It matters that our self-talk is true, that it's sanctified by the word of God. And David begins now to, I think, reveal to us a little of his heart, a little of his inner, inner conversation as he's talking to the Lord. We, we know that when we're in trouble, we go before the Lord. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one else to help. 
Or Psalm 46, 1, God is my refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. And so what God is doing, or what David is doing now, is he's preaching to himself. He's talking to himself. He's taking all of this stuff, and he's wrestling with it in his mind. He says, I can go this way, or I can go that way. But this is the way I need to go. And so he says, the Lord is good. In the midst of all he's facing, in the midst of all he's suffering, the Lord is good. The Lord is upright. There's no unrighteousness in the Lord. The Lord is merciful. He shows even sinners the way. The Lord will lead me and guide me. The Lord can lead me and guide me. The Lord will teach me his truth. And, and the ways of the Lord, they're, they're not out to hurt me. They're not out to make my, my life miserable. But the ways of the Lord are steadfast love and truth and faithfulness. And God will be true to his name. God, honor your name. God, be true to your name. God, God, in all that you're doing to me, bring glory to your name. Who is a pardoning God like thee? One of my favorite verses when I read it, and I do recount it from time to time, is Micah 7, 18. Where the prophet says, who is a pardoning God like you? Who, is, who has grace so rich and free? That's actually the song, but that's the verse as well. He's, he's astounded by the pardoning reality of God. Who is a pardoning God like you? And so we tell ourselves that God will lead us or God will guide us. He will make a way. And, and even though he don't always reveal it to us, God has a way and God has a path. And it is a wonderful way and it is a wonderful path. And nobody is beyond his help. He says he will even show sinners the way. We tell ourselves that God will forgive me. I'm amazed uh, at... David comes back to this about three times in the text. So one of the things that is troubling him is his sin. And we come to this, and, and he, he almost makes this bold declaration to God, for your name's sake, God, you've got to forgive me. That's astounding to me, that he has the audacity to say that to the Lord. Based on What? Well, based on God's character, his loving kindness, his tender mercies, because that is what he is like. And David has a significant need. He says, pardon me for my guilt is great. My experience with myself and with others is we tend to minimize our sin. We tend to speak around the edges of our sin. I think I've learned with myself and with others that when we're talking about our sin, it's like an iceberg. We talk about the 10% that people can see and that we want to admit, but there's like this 90% massive, immense stuff that we never want to talk about. David sees his sin for what it is. He says, it is great. It is immense. But he knows the character of God, and he says, because of your name, for your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my sin. I sometimes wonder, do we ever recognize the magnitude of our sin? I sometimes wonder also, it's, it's been striking me as we've gone through the Psalms. I think we're really good at speaking about repentance when one first comes to the Lord. And it's very true. That, that, you know, the people, of, uh, when they were preaching to them in the Bible, they said, what must I do to, my save, to be saved? And they said, repent of your sins. But somehow in the Christian life, repentance 
if we're not careful, becomes a thing of the past. And it, it no longer is a priority or part of the regular walk with God that we ought to pursue. David here has been walking with God a long time. He still recognizes that he sins. He still recognizes that he sins greatly. Hopefully he sins less and less and less, and I, I think he does, as so do we. But never deny that we still need to repent. Never deny what, 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 what we're told in John. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Make repentance a daily part of your routine, or at least a weekly part of your routine before the Lord. Don't trick yourself into to thinking that you just do little things now. Just remember that God is a pardoning God. He's not waiting to whack you. He longs to forgive you. He's a pardoning God. We tell ourselves that God is our friend. I'll just draw your attention to that. It's a beautiful verse. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. In the midst of all his stuff, David recognizes that the Lord brings him into his counsel. The Lord has attached himself to him as a friend. And part of the friendship of the Lord, I think, involves that the Lord, remember God talking, I said I wouldn't say much about this, but remember God talking to Abraham uh, about Sodom? And God says, well, I gotta tell Abraham, he's my friend. I'm gonna tell him what's, what's gonna come. I think that's what it means, that, that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, that as you walk with God, trust, he will give you enough. He will allow you to see what he's doing. If not, as you're walking ahead, maybe a little bit ahead, you can look back and you say, oh, of course, God. Tell yourself when you're troubled and when you're, tell yourself, God is my friend. He's not my enemy. He's not my, he's not against me. Tell yourself, God is your friend. As you come to the end of this, I think there's a wonderful reality that's presented in this uh, Psalm. On the one hand, you have notes of confidence that David expresses. My eyes on you, verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, verse 17. But on the, real, on the other hand, he's in real trouble. Pull my feet out of the net. I'm trapped. I'm alone. I'm afflicted. I'm distressed. The distresses of my heart increases. My, my sufferings are there. And have you ever noticed sometimes that as a Christian, that the more you pray, the more difficult things become? Have you ever noticed sometimes that, that it's, it's a lie when somebody tells you, give your heart to the Lord and everything will be wonderful? It's a lie from the pit of hell. The reality is that sometimes when we trust the Lord, our lives get worse. This is, I think, what the psalmist is expressing here to a certain degree. It's not a mistake, the flow of this psalm. It's a help, the flow of this psalm. It reminds us that sometimes the ways of the Lord are to take us through deep distress and to take us through deep suffering. To realize that sometimes our life is going to get even worse before it gets better. Think of the life of Jesus. He ended up being crucified. He prayed in the garden, Lord, deliver me, and the Lord didn't deliver him. And there's a complexity to our lives, aren't, isn't there? David prays, Guard me, deliver me, don't let me be put to shame. I take refuge in me. May, may integrity and uprightness keep me, for I wait for you, and yet his troubles mount. 
And in the midst of this, he comes back to his sin again and again. His sins haunt him. Do you, do you know this, loved ones? And I think you do. We're at war without Satan. Revelations 12 tells us, is gone to make war against the saints. I don't want to make that just a big thing, but no, he is not your friend. Know that Satan is out for everyone who loves the Lord and professes the name of Jesus Christ. Satan is at war with you. And you will feel that from time to time. But there's also a war within. In 1 Peter, is 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 2? Abstain from the fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. There's a war within as well. At war without and at war within. He doesn't make the mistake of forgetting the traitor that's within by focusing on the traitors that are without. And then he prays, God, redeem Israel from all her sins. I, I love that last line because it's David's way of saying, it's not me alone who faces troubles. It's not me alone who is distressed by life. It's not me alone who is at war without and within. All of your people, God, are at war. I hope you know that Two, three times a month, your elders gather for at least an hour. Together, they do this on their own, but they gather together and they uphold you before the Lord. And often we comment as we look through a list, which is a private list that we keep, but of the f sufferings and the afflictions and the battles and the stresses and the temptations and the failures and the successes that you as God's people have. They love you. They care for you. And their prayer is much like David's at the, at the end of this. Oh, God, redeem your church from all of their troubles and distresses. I think Jesus must have loved this psalm. The writer of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I wonder what Jesus thought as he read this psalm. I bet you he prayed often the verse, first three verses, oh Lord, I trust in you. Oh Lord, my hope is in you. Do not let me be disgraced. I wonder if as Jesus read this psalm and he recognized the character of God and he saw that character was developing and showing in him and as people walked with him, his disciples walked with him, they were amazed at his tender mercy and his compassion and his loving kindness towards others and his forgiving heart towards others as the character of Jesus was revealed again and again and again. And I wonder when it clicked in Jesus' head. Maybe it was in the last weeks of his life. Maybe it was as he hung on the cross that I am the means through which God can answer that plea. Pardon their iniquity, for it is great. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the psalmist. I thank you that he's not a modern-day writer hoping to fill a church. He's just a follower of Jesus, a son of God, who expresses very clearly that sometimes life is tough. But always you are faithful. Father, help us to learn from this psalm. Help us to look to Jesus as we read this psalm. 
I pray this in Christ's name, amen.